0: Hello listeners, Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello listeners. In tonight's episode, we're going to be discussing one of Nova Scotia's darkest days, On January 3rd of 2017, Afghanistan war veteran, Lionel Desmond bought a semi-automatic rifle, dressed himself in camo, and snuck through the woods to his family's home. Inside the home, he shot his mother, his wife, and his 10-year-old daughter before turning the gun on himself. The factors that led to this horrific end and the red flags that were missed or ignored along the way were the topic of a public inquiry that now, seven years after the killings and four years after the hearings begin, has just concluded. In this episode, a sort of eclipse in storytelling coverage and case analysis will occur as co-host of the Sunday Nights Show series, Adam Rogers, served as the deceased Lionel Desmond's legal representative in the inquiry. Thanks to his connection to the story, He's gonna walk Paul Polango and I through the story of Lionel Desmond, the deaths of Lionel and his family, the search for accountability, and where it's all at today. So let's get into it. Mr. Adam Rogers, Mr. Paul Polango, it's fair to say we've the three of us have survived Snowmageddon or Snowvid 2024. Uh, we don't need to complain about the weather because there's hell of a lot of that going around Nova Scotia, so we'll spare everybody us flapping our gums about it. But let's start with this, Adam Rogers. Aside from breaking your back shoveling over the last few days, what's new with you? <laughs>
1: I put in many hours of shoveling over the last few days, and it's great. I uh, I treat that like a like a workout, like a weights workout, oh, right? Yeah. In the best shape of my life. You, you know, you think of the technique and all, all these things and don't hurt your back and all that stuff. But it's it's great, and great snowball snow too. So getting some uh, early spring training and out, uh, outdoors the last few days. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Mr. Palango. don't tell me you're out in your driveway risking your life on ice with a shovel.
1: I have people
2: who
0: do that. The mafia boss of Chester Basin does and not shovel his driveway.
2: No, it's uh, I stopped shoveling driveways many years ago. Uh, seeing people, seeing people drop, saying I had a great workout. Oh, <laughs> I even had a brother-in-law who did that exact thing. So ooh, ooh, I learned
0: ooh. not to shovel. It's true. A mistake, shoveling, or going too hard, shoveling, that can change your life. Absolutely. No question. Uh, so smart move, Paul. We need you to do other things aside from shovel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's been new with you, Paul? What's going on? Well,
2: the, you know, we had the uh, the passing of uh, broadcaster Rick Howe last week, mm-hmm. uh, who, read, who you know, for 40 years or so, he's a journalist in uh, the Maritimes, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. Uh, he ran the daily talk show in Halifax for you know many years and was well loved and a very important person in the job that uh, we're doing because mm-hmm. if it wasn't for him and you know Andrew Douglas at Frank Magazine, uh, we wouldn't have got sort of as far as we did with the story about the mass casualty in Nova Scotia in 2020 because mm-hmm. Rick Howe took it on. Uh, he became a believer in the story that there was something wrong, and he gave me and others airtime to talk about it,
0: and definitely broadcast uh, that side of the story to an audience that wouldn't have found it reading the mainstream news, especially at that time in the early days.
2: People uh, would think, "Oh, I don't listen to talk radio or anything like that," but in these days, were of shrinking news holes and and uh, indifferent reporting you need every voice and he was a very powerful voice mm-hmm. in uh sort of moving the mountain of opinion that mm-hmm. needed to be moved
0: mm-hmm. and an amazing speaker could talk to anybody about anything uh, he's definitely uh, missed in talk radio in halifax uh, my condolences to all his friends and family and his wonderful wife yvonne
1: well, my condolences to both of them and she's a great journalist yeah, too so 69 years old, you know, still many good years ahead, you would have thought, and uh, yeah, so so very sad news.
0: Yeah, definitely. So our condolences to him, but we got a lot to get into tonight. What we plan to discuss is rather than a series of of stories as we often do, focus specifically on the story of Lionel Desmond, the case that, that surrounds his death, the public inquiry that followed, and the recommendations that come out of that. This is a. I'm excited for this because we have a unique opportunity. Because the three of us have followed the sh- the story, of course, since the beginning, but Adam has gone a major step forward. Where maybe before we we touch on the story, Adam, just give us a in a nutshell your your role in this whole case at this point.
1: Yeah. So people would know me much from the mass casualty commission, uh, but this is this Desmond inquiry predated the Mass Casualty Commission, and this really where my, I mean, I became involved in this inquiry, representing the Desmond family, uh, specifically representing the estate of uh, the late Corporal Desmond through his sister, Cassandra, so involved with the family, you know, in the efforts to get an inquiry called, uh, helped, you know, with setting up the inquiry and and some of those discussions, and then also, uh, you know, represented them throughout the inquiry. So... A fascinating process throughout, uh, quite quite an education, uh, a different kind of an experience as a lawyer certainly, mm-hmm. but uh, also to to work with the family, you know that was uh, quite something. Uh, an impressive group of people in you know unbelievably difficult circumstances.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, to just dis- to explain the circumstances, I'm going to play one news clip that aired just a couple days after the killing of Lionel's wife his mother and his 10-year-old daughter, and then Lionel's death uh, as a result of self-inflicted gunshot. Uh, I'm gonna play a news clip that aired just after that. The, The actual event happened on January 3rd of 2017. I think this news clip's about a week later.
3: Today, the search for clues continued. Police recovering Lionel Desmond's vehicle and his family desperately looking for hints
4: to how things could have gone so wrong. Lionel was an amazing person. And that person that was in him that night, and that monster that was in him, that wasn't my brother.
3: On Tuesday evening, police were called to the Desmond family home. His wife, Shana, who recently fulfilled a lifelong dream of becoming a nurse, was shot dead. So was their daughter, Aaliyah, who just had her 10th birthday party last week. And Lionel Desmond's mother, Brenda, a woman known for her generosity. Police say the veteran of Afghanistan, who had struggled for years with PTSD, appears to have then shot himself. Day 13, raise awareness for PTSD. While in the military, Desmond received treatment and in Montreal after his release, according to his family. But still,
4: he was hearing voices in his head. My brother went to the hospital on Monday in Anikinesh, St. Martha's, where his wife was a registered nurse. My brother told the hospital that he wasn't right, that something was wrong with him.
3: She says the local hospital turned him away. The province is investigating that claim.
0: So people new to the story uh, who've just heard that will know that this is going to be a heavy discussion around a a very heavy case. But the the, the first thing about it that surprised me from the beginning of the story, and I'll ask you about this, Adam, is... uh, even in the early news clips, you hear Lionel's family talking about uh, the perpetrator of a triple murder-suicide as, you know, that wasn't him. Whatever mm. happened that night, that was not Lionel. And that seemed to be the, the narrative from the very beginning. What made it so clear to everybody that, that this was, like, what is the background that leads to this, that his family knows, you know, this was not Lionel?
1: Like, he was... He was such a nice guy, a, nice, a gentle, happy-go-lucky, you know, down on the floor playing with the kids kind of a guy. And so, you know, it was it was it was completely a different kind of a person. But I mean, that kind of per, that person that you know that I just talk about—that's before he went to Afghanistan. He came back from Afghanistan. He was he was changed. He was reserved. He had concussions, so he had some difficulties. But still, the thing the family had identified and some of them had witnessed was uh, something that really didn't come through in the report, unfortunately, uh, and I think this is a big problem we'll get into, was that Lionel was having these dissociative episodes. He had post-traumatic stress disorder, but he had these episodes and he had these in front of uh, clinicians in medical appointments where he just wouldn't be there. He was, he his mind, he was somewhere else and, you know certain things could set him off, uh, you know, loud music he couldn't stand, you know, other things, but just you know, stressful situation and he might you know, he have a dissociative episode and he just wouldn't be there. And there was a lot of things that happened in the day or two leading up to the the tragedy. Everything seemed out of line. And so the thing that seemed to explain what had taken place was that he was in the midst of a dissociative episode during the tragic events. Mm-hmm and there was uh, anyway there seemed to be lots of evidence pointing that direction all of us you know he's he's all dressed up he's doing things all day he's he's you know making appointments for the future and then all of a sudden he's in camouflage you know sneaking through the woods to his house mm-hmm. um you know so that was i guess that's the foundation of it there's more details of course but that's kind of what the family felt when this all happened and never ever stopped expressing their their love for him mm-hmm.
0: It, there was a, um, in that clip we just heard, it, they describe him going to the hospital for help, you know, I'm not feeling right, yeah. either the day of or in the days before. I know there was, it seemed to be there was some doubt about whether or not that happened. What was, like, what do you know about Definitely. Lionel's pursuit of therapy or some kind of intervention of what was going on? Like, what, what came out from that?
1: So, he, he was not turned away from the hospital. That was that was discovered fairly early on that that was a misunderstanding that, uh, that, you know, somebody just had the misunderstanding that he was turned away. He had been to the hospital at St. Martha's he didn't go to the third floor when you people around Anakinish would know when you talk about the third floor, that's the mental health wing at St. Martha's he was taken because his wife worked there to a room at emergency, like just a, a side room there to just, sorry, just relax for a bit. Mm-hmm. And that was that was all he needed. He spoke to dealt with the doctor, came back again, dealt with the you know spoke to a psychiatrist. So he he did receive treatment at the hospital in the the days leading up. Um, so that was yeah he saw actually saw two uh, two different mental health professionals I think during that time.
0: Mm-hmm. But ex-
2: it, it was the thing about Desmond was that this was going on for a long period of time. I mean he was diagnosed with you know, major depression in 2007. Uh, you know in 2015, he was having persistent dreams about his wife being unfaithful to him and you know uh, and violent imagery of stabbing her and the man involved. Uh, you know he had paranoid and homo- homo- homicidal thoughts almost on a daily basis. I mean, he wasn't getting the treatment that he should have been getting. In this situation
1: yeah. there was times where there was times like early on when he was in treatment where he you know he seemed you could you could almost see the ebbs and flows of it as we went through the evidence there was times early on where he seemed to be doing quite well and then you know uh, he had a racial there was a racial incident with chocolate milk on base and then he had a setback because he thought all his you know his comrades hated him or something and he would so he would have these setbacks but there was a key. You're right there, Paul. Like when he came back from um, when he he was discharged, he went uh, like months without any treatment. This is in the months leading up to the tragedy. Uh, so you know he had no care provided for him for like, three months, four months at one point. There well, is not there, uh, like like there at one
2: point. Isn't there at one point where he um, he has like six different psychiatrists looking after him? Like there's no consistency. There's yeah. no one, no one, you know, no one person taking charge of the situation. So he's getting rather indifferent care, which is sort of the problem that we get right through the medical system nowadays. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. and it didn't, this didn't come out in the report, but in the, they had this uh, situation in Montreal, and he started to be, he it said, suspicious of his caregivers. Like, like they were just trying to process him or something, and they weren't, because he didn't feel like they were really getting to him, right? Uh, so he was, he, he was persistent in trying to get help uh but they just couldn't seem to figure him out
0: when was it just to get a, a sense of the timeline when did he get back from Afghanistan roughly so he was in
1: Afghanistan in 2007 it was a while ago it's so he was, here's a there's another thing like because this was a provincial inquiry and not a federal inquiry we didn't get into the question of what happened you know how do you prepare a soldier for battle? Mm. Uh, You know, we asked a few witnesses about that, but we didn't get into it very deeply because that's federal territory and it's not subject to, you know, it's not within the jurisdiction of the inquiry. Mm. Really a shortcoming because, I mean, that's where it all happened. You know, he had concussions. He had, uh, you know, they were in firefights every day for hours and hours and hours. And, you know, that messed him up. It messed a bunch of people up.
0: Uh, Certainly. So if he comes back in, you know, 2007, 2008-ish, this doesn't happen until almost 10 years later. When did his trouble start with PTSD? And when was it obvious that that Lionel had changed?
1: Like he's treatment started a couple of years later, Mm -hmm. you know, tried to deal with it on his own. And Mm -hmm. then the treatment started. He was still in the military he was uh you know put in a band which for a guy with some concussions and head issues didn't seem like a great idea in retrospect but they needed to put him somewhere he was uh, learning some you know mechanical skills and such um but mostly yeah being around gauge
0: town and yeah mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm.
1: he and was that- doing work but no no uh no return to combat
0: And Paul had mentioned a period of time in 2015 where it seemed to really become a problem. My understanding is in 2015, he was arrested in New Brunswick under some kind of mental health emergency that he was having that led to him having his firearms license suspended. Uh, I'm assuming that in the inquiry, looking at how he got the firearms became an issue. And I just find it surprising that only two years before the killings, he had his firearms license suspended. What is the story with that?
1: Yeah, so in uh, 2015, he had called his uh, his wife and said, you know, say, say goodbye to Aaliyah and all that stuff. Sounded suicidal. Mm-hmm. So she called the police. Some police came over, uh, spoke to him, took him to the hospital, spent a few hours with him, uh, had, uh, you know, great interaction with him. It sounded like they testified about it. And uh, then took him home later that night. He was he was doing better. Took his guns though. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there was so there was a report registered in New Brunswick on that in the New Brunswick system, but that report never made it to the New, Nova Scotia system. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't seen as it, it wasn't part of the relevant mix when he went to get his license renewed again in Nova Scotia. Well, another and, and another issue like.
2: That, that strikes me about this, that's really important, similar to what you're talking about, is like Dr. Scott Terrio, a psychiatrist who examined him, said that you know, one of the issues, looking at the, the problems that this guy was facing, went beyond PTSD and uh, depression. There was something fundamentally wrong, and he said that in reviewing the case, he if he had been his psychiatrist, He would have wanted to talk to his wife, got permission to talk to his wife to better assess the situation. But, you know, in this day and age, everyone's reluctant. It's privacy, privacy, privacy. Mm -hmm. And people are not being protected because uh, they don't want to ask, can I talk to your wife and your family so I can get a better sense of this situation? And to provide, uh, you know, with more knowledge comes uh, more security in a way because. If someone knows about what's really going on and has a better fix on it, they might've been able to take uh, firmer action and, and prevent this
1: tragedy. A great uh, resource too, Paul, where she was a nurse and uh, you know, had been involved in his care often enough, uh, that, you know, and of course knew him before and after. I mean, she knew him basically from the time he was a kid, right? So was somebody that could have really spoken about the, all of those issues and been helpful as a resource, but wasn't used that way.
0: I want, I want to get a bit more on the, the, the gun thing, Adam, because it's he has his license, his firearms license suspended in 2015. He yeah. gets it back. Uh, my understanding is he he buys a gun rape like either the day of or the day before the killings. Can you talk yeah. me through kind of the timeline of how he get how he ends up getting like a semi-automatic rifle in the middle of obviously a mental health crisis with years of PTSD? treatment behind him like what, what is the timeline of that so
1: there was there were two incidents around the same time in 2015. there was one in nova scotia where uh lionel had been upset and uh shana had called the police and the police showed up and uh, lionel Lionel had taken off he'd gone cool his head go for a walk by the way like as i said never any allegation of violence uh by anybody uh, between the two of them before mm-hmm. this of course So the police showed up and talked to Shana and, uh, then, but the, the, the Nova Scotia police and the New Brunswick police have no way of knowing that the other incident has happened. Right. And then when, so when Lionel goes to get his license renewed in New Brunswick, he has to get a a medical form signed. He gets it signed uh, by his, his psychologist and says, uh, you know, he seemed to be doing better and, uh, he didn't, you know, didn't have all of these details. He didn't have access to the, you know, criminal history or anything like that. It just seemed to be doing better. And so he got the got the license. There was one other thing though, which was in the military, he was not permitted to have a firearm. He wasn't on base in during exercises because of because of these mental health concerns. Uh, and he was undergoing treatment within the military. Like they wouldn't allow him on base to have a gun. But okay. when he goes into the civilian world, he's allowed. And the two systems, again, are not connected. Even wow. though federal, firearms is a federal responsibility, it's administered through the provinces. And so the federal military system and the federal but really provincial firearms system don't connect in any way. Mm-hmm. So one of the recommendations is, by the way, here's the report. That's how thick it is. Uh, not a bit of color anywhere in this report. Um, uh, they don't have the mass casualty commission budget. Yeah, he was not allowed firearms, uh, within the military, but could in civilian life.
0: So, so he gets his firearms license back in in Nova Scotia in 2016, despite all this other everything else behind him. Um, uh, that's that's gone firearms
1: back. He got the firearms license back in New Brunswick. He did and, okay, but it was valid in Nova Scotia. You have your, your pal, your uh. Um, purchase an acquisition or
0: uh,
1: acquisition license. And um, yeah, so now one of the recommendations is if you have employment restrictions r- respecting firearms, you have to disclose that to um, to the, in your firearms applications in civilian life.
0: Okay, so should he have disclosed
1: that? No, there was no requirement at the time for him to do that. Uh, okay. he, he did, he asked every, he answered every question he was to be asked that had to be answered and so within the system, as it existed, as it exists, really, uh, he got his license legitimately and kept it legitimately.
0: Okay. Do you know, now? I, I don't know if this came up in the inquiry at all, and we'll get into that, but do you know if people close to him, like his wife specifically, knew that he was going through the process of getting his firearms license back? Because that seems like something where if I was involved in this, I'd be like, oh, I don't know, Lana, like we may want to wait on that. I think the... Uh,
1: not sure if this post is automatically notified. Uh, can't remember. Okay. I remember. But uh, I mean, she knew she knew he had a license. She knew he had a, a pal because she he had firearms. He had firearms in New Brunswick at one point. Had them taken away. So I don't know. Maybe she thought that
0: they took away the license too. But no,
1: mm-hmm. I think she would have known he got it back.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, talk through like we, we talked a lot about the f- getting and and not having a firearms license. But how does it go down on with him getting the semi-automatic rifle that he used for for the murders?
1: All right. So we tried to attract his actions on the day of, and you can do this a little bit by text messages and where he was and all this stuff. But he, so he ends up in the afternoon. So he got oh, so he he goes to Anakinish first thing in the morning. Uh, Sorry, later in later in the morning or lunchtime confirms an appointment with his uh a psychologist for later in the month
0: mm-hmm.
1: all right comes back home turns around and goes back to leaves and limbs in annaganish so there's a there was a strange thing in itself he was already in annaganish drives over half an hour back and then turns around and goes back to leaves
0: and limbs buys this gun it leaves and limbs is a like a firearm store
1: yeah, it's a firearms outdoor store. It's a good okay. store. Uh, man, the guy that owns it is Daniel Clonick testified in the inquiry and he was just like the he racked with guilt, Did't do a thing wrong. He knew Lionel's grandfather. He had like had, you know Lionel gets to the store and we see video of this had this uh, and Judge Zimmer had the uh, one of the psychologists examine the video of him in the store. He's as patient as could be. He's more patient, you know, than any anybody you'd see. Like if <laughs> if somebody didn't have their phone, like he was just standing there, and he was looking at things. It's, anyway, so he buys a used gun. He doesn't buy a new gun, he doesn't buy a cheap, you know, just give me the cheapest gun, let me get out of here. He buys a used gun, gets a good deal on it, gets a uh, nice of uh, ammunition. Doesn't get the cheap ammunition, gets the stuff that, anyway. So again, it it all seemed to be a good long-term purchase, mm-hmm. not something designed to just do something that day and be done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and he, he had his card, he was a legitimate purchase, and by the way, the, the store, the Leaves and Limbs, took all the information down and kept all records of all this stuff, which, is not required. They went above and beyond what they had to do. Check the database and all this stuff. Uh, stores don't even need to do that. They can just take your your pal, your your card, and sell you a firearm and uh, not keep records of all that. Anyway, the, so that's another recommendation. But uh, yeah, it was, uh it was kind of it was a strange thing to watch him in the store, just the, the
0: way he was behaving. Wow, and and so how long from? purchasing this used rifle does he actually go through with what happens about an hour hour and uh hour and 20 minutes or so okay in and i don't know if if do people at this point like is it one of those things where it's people know what went on in the house or is there still a question of what actually even happened
1: no people know uh there was some a uh, as to the order of death and but that was more or less resolved i mean his his mother seems to have died last uh and they you know they had the angles of all the shots and stuff they were able to examine all the 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 entry and exit wounds and such but the mother uh, was able to make a phone call uh and um call her brother to say you know get over here and but you know that was within minutes uh he was uh, the, within minutes, actually, Lionel's sister, unex, not unexpectedly, but showed up minutes later. So could have been worse, too. Uh, but yeah, they so he he parked. So he comes back from Leeds and Lands. He parked his vehicle in the woods, took them days to find this vehicle. Mm-hmm. That news report, you said uh, the, about a week later, like that it took some time. His uncle and uh, this other guy went and looked for it. the uncle had an idea where it might be. He snuck through the woods, through a path in the woods, uh, put um, stabbed her tires, slashed her tires on the truck, and uh, and then went went into the house. Uh, Look, seems to have killed his wife first. Okay, but are, so here's an interesting thing and a name that uh, you'd be familiar with. Corporal Rose Berthune was one of the investigators. Had a. a th- a theory well here was so here was the evidence was that it was a uh, i think a 12 a 10 clip magazine or something but he took the clip out of the gun before leaving only one bullet in before he shot himself and corporal rose Berthune thought and a few others thought this uh, were it was put to others and they agreed was him being a firearms expert would have known that that gun would now be safe if anybody showed up at the house. uh That it would still have a clip left in it that some kid might pick up, or somebody that doesn't know what they're doing could pick up. And so his last his last thought, in a sense, was to keep you know keep somebody safe,
0: whoever might come upon the scene.
1: Wow, isn't that something? Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it is. Now, this case, much like like Portapic, it's it didn't uh, the inquiry wasn't a given right off the bat that this is something that his family had to adv- advocate for and put some public pressure out there for do you want, want to tell us a bit about that yeah so this was like cassandra and her sister
1: went to ottawa lobbied the veterans affairs minister Seamus oregan at the time nothing lobbied the uh the premier and the justice minister mark fury nothing Went and spoke to Dr. Matthew Bose, the uh, chief medical examiner. I was there with them when they met with him. And uh, Dr. Bose, you could see, was quite affected by the whole thing, and uh, wrote to Justice Minister Fury, saying, "You know, here, here, laid it all out in a couple of page letter. Uh, I think you should call an inquiry." And Justice, the minister wrote back, "No," uh, and here are all the reasons why not. Uh, Bose writes again. Basically saying, you don't call an inquiry. I'm going to call an inquiry. Why don't you call the inquiry? I could I could force you to do it under this legislation, and I can point this out to you. And I asked Doctor Bose at the inquiry, I said, "Were you? Uh, well, I can't remember exactly. How I put it, were you trying to, you know, give a subtle hint that he should call the inquiry?" <laughs> Doctor Bose said, "I didn't think I was being very subtle." <laughs> so he was basically so. Uh, the provincial government, federal government, did not, never wanted this to happen. It was forced upon the provincial government by uh, Dr. Bose and his uh, courage. But wow. isn't that the pro- isn't that the larger
2: problem that we face? You know, we saw in Port and in everything else, that's pretty well happened with large federal institutions like the RCMP and the and the military. The government never really wants to do anything, mm-hmm. you know, because it's too big a problem to handle. Yeah, and I mean the very same players who were involved in Portapic were involved in this. You know, Fury, even even the invest the lead investigator, Rose uh, Gerard Gerald Rose Berthoum from the RCMP, yeah. same guy in Portapic. Some uh, other familiar name, Addie McCallum was involved. Addie in- McCallum was in both of them.
1: Yeah, you're right, Paul. Like the the reticence to make any major changes was, was something, uh, you know, and you could see it at both both levels. Like Veterans Affairs, I described it in my closing argument. You guys know the the Kafka novel, The Castle, <laughs> like this bureaucracy where, so this town and there's a castle, and everybody in the town knows somebody that knows somebody that works in the castle, but nobody's ever actually been there or knows it really functions. Whatever, right? It's just a unnavigable bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and that's what veterans affairs is Mm
0: -hmm.
1: would you want your you know niece nephew grandchild child whoever joining the military knowing that if they go see combat somewhere they might come back completely messed up and nobody's going to know how to deal with them nobody's going to know nobody's going to prepare them properly nobody's going to you know and if they kill their family, nobody's going to come around and organize the funeral. Like well, and if
2: you're a woman in the military, it's <laughs> oh, it's a bad, you know, like U.S., dangerous. in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. Department of Defense statistics show like almost 10% of women and 1.5% of men are sexually, uh, have unwanted sexual contact while they're in the military. And I'm
0: sure the numbers are much higher than that. Probably, yeah. That's mm-hmm. the reported number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in the Desmond case, in terms of getting to the inquiry, this is a case where it, it seems only natural that there would be one where we've already heard how he was able to fall through the cracks just as a result of the bureaucracy uh, and, and the lack of communication between the provinces and between the military and the civilian world. It seems like a public inquiry would be the only venue to really get all the players at the table to have a discussion is that it was that kind of the motivation to have a public inquiry is to it, to connect all these different kind of silos.
1: Yeah. It was the, the biggest thing that seemed like an obvious problem and a problem that affected what happened and led to what happened was, you know, the complete disconnect between the federal and provincial health systems, mm-hmm. you know, here he was one of the more complex cases that you could see coming out of a military sit even a military situation and those are complex to start with He has concussions he has the PTSD he has dissociative episodes and here he is coming back into a provincial system and nobody knows who he is other than you know he was he was in the provincial system as a kid and he had you know maybe a broken bone I don't remember he did he had very little medical history before at the military huh and there's just no way of like those records just they're they're not given to the soldier when they leave they're not given, they're not transferred from federal to provincial jurisdictions. They're just mm. nowhere, they're just held by the the federal government and military. And uh, so that transition is a big thing. And then the other side of the transition, the social side, the military had all these like PowerPoint slide presentations and documents and stuff on how to reintegrate with your family after military service, after combat, and none of it actually gets done. Like we talk to certain families all right how much of this actually happens none so there's a real disconnect before like between when a, a soldier leaves the military to return to civilian life like there's mm-hmm. there's just nothing nothing done they're just left to their own devices
0: well it sounds like a scene out of first blood you know the rambo movie but well, it's, yeah, yeah. With, with um with lionel desmond when he's seeking when like when when it's apparent there's a problem and he's struggling and he's seeking therapy or support from the hospital with him, with his background as a soldier, does that come into play at all? Or would it be as far as the treatment he gets, or would it be just like if I went to the hospital, like he would just go in to O patients or the emergency room or something and say what, you know, what's going on. Like, I'm just wondering what, how he accessed healthcare when, when these problems started. Same as you
1: and me, except with one caveat, I, I made this conclusion, too, during the inquiry. like everybody outside of the military and veterans affairs world mm-hmm. treated Lionel Desmond great. Like they, they went out of the way for him. Like there was an on-call psychiatrist that came in that's supposed to just see him and then, like, send him off to somebody. Said, okay, you, you, you're not connected yet to the operational stress injury clinic in Halifax. Well, I'll keep you as a patient until you are. Okay. you know we had doctors in how in here in guys There's the two doctors that were here in guys at the time one still here both had experience in uh in war uh they came from one came from sri lanka the other came uh from somewhere in africa where there had been some conflict and so like were able to talk to him a little bit right and so he did have and, and people gave him lots of time and uh, tried to help but they just couldn't get to know him like the therapist that was seeing him that had done some work with uh, this um dissociative episodes and ptsd here that was based in Anakinish, saw him like twice and she's like i'm gonna need six or seven eight sessions just to do the baseline with this guy mm-hmm. so imagine if she had been just all right actually here's eight reports on him how about you read those mm-hmm. uh, to help out but they were never provided well. Was there any sense uh, you were close
2: to this. Was there any sense of brain damage, other like the concussions? I understand, but yeah. was there any uh, post-mortem um, investigation into
1: the nature of the brain damage he may have suffered? I asked about that. there was so there were three documented concussions that he had. Uh, one was a parachute accident, another was uh, you, you know during combat two during combat one was a a lav rollover and another was where a mud wall collapsed under him and he hit his head hard so uh i asked the question about you know unfortunately of course when somebody the way he killed himself that just wasn't possible in his case but i asked the uh, chief medical examiner the the officer if they do any of those studies cuz you see you hear about this in nfl football players mm-hmm that they'll, you know, study their brains and see what kind of damage the football did to them, right? Um, they weren't able to do it for him, but I think they should uh, look at that if if the opportunity
0: comes, Is you know, in other soldiers. Uh, now, now, you represented his estate in in the inquiry, but you've, you've already described times before the inquiry is even called that you're you know there with his family at what point do you get involved in this story and what was the original purpose of your involvement if you can say
1: first well the the first time i was involved it was just going to a vigil right over at uh, in upper big trackity yeah, because this uh, is in dude. like
0: this is basically in your hometown where this hall yeah, takes this, place. Yeah,
1: this is about twenty minutes away from here. I go by this house all the time. Like okay. uh, anytime, like everybody does. Yeah, anytime you go to Anakinish or Pernoxbury, you you're gonna pass this the the Desmond home, well Borden home. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I had uh, you know I knew lots of people in the family and knew Cassandra. So uh, they called me up just to help out with you know meeting with Dr. Bose trying to figure out that side of things uh, and you know who do they who do they even talk to uh, mm-hmm. so just helping helping to set that part up
0: it's almost like another failure like the like you would think the Military would have someone kind of leading this for the family where, where Cassandra doesn't, his sister doesn't have to be on the news calling for an inquiry and, you know, all this on her own. We see the same thing with Portapic where it's, it's left to the grieving families to like publicly advocate for themselves.
1: And there's a lot of complicated stuff with the estate and all that stuff too, to deal with life insurance and, and, you know, so there's these other details, but yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I, I mentioned the, the funerals. So after his passing, nobody from Veterans Affairs showed up to arrange the funerals, pay for the funerals. Nobody knew who was going to do what. Fortunately, uh, Lionel's mentor, his uncle, ju- a guy named Junior McClellan, retired warrant officer, had his own struggles, though, with PTSD. and his, But uh, Lionel's grandfather called him up and said, Junior, I, I need your help. And so Junior shows up uh, to his own detriment. Uh, made all the phone calls made all the arrangements used his experience as a warrant officer to uh, to do that and uh, was was really heroic under the circumstances unfortunately I wasn't I never really made it to the report but that oh. that was an important detail mm-hmm. again because it's not a federal report you can't there's no point criticizing veterans affairs but you end up leaving out important parts of the story as a result
0: yeah well well, tell us it we'll get into the inquiry now because it's it, it's not a f- Maybe just explain that one more time. This inquiry was only looking at Nova Scotia's role in all the aspects of Lionel's case. Yeah. So
1: it's a fatality inquiry. You're looking into the cause of death, what, you know, what caused it, but you know, you can get a little broader than what, you know, the specific thing that caused it and look into what, did he receive proper healthcare? Uh, Did he, yeah. Did he have access to proper mental health supports, proper domestic, uh, violence intervention supports, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. all under the provincial government uh, jurisdiction.
0: Okay. It just seems though, like in, in his story so far, we're taught we're our, even our conversation now is bouncing so much between, you know, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, the federal government through the, you know, the military and all this, it, it just seems like to really get to the bottom of what went wrong in this case, okay. all of these players need to be at the table.
1: You're right. You're absolutely right. Like I remember early on thinking, oh, well, we'll probably go to Afghanistan. <laughs> like, like, shouldn't we go, like, go check this place out and see you know, what kind of hellhole are we sending our soldiers into? Like, this was, I don't know, like, uh, seemed like a relevant question. Uh, and we had a couple of doctors, I remember one specifically saying, anytime, this was the cannabis doctor out of New Brunswick uh, who set up sort of modern legions, except they're cannabis-based. Anyway, he was saying, any time he talks to somebody who was in Afghanistan in two thousand seven, he doesn't have to say another word. He just knows it's going to be bad. You know, like that was just a just a bad time to be to be there. So,
2: Here, here's a question for you. Yeah
1: how how many
2: fatality inquiries have there been in Nova Scotia, say in the last twenty four
1: years? Oh, uh, I've got the answer. Okay, I was going to say <laughs> maybe. Two or three others
2: that's right three others there's been four in 24 years yeah uh you know adam como in 2000 donald leblanc in 2007 howard hyde in 2009 it's uh probably a very useful um uh inquiry to have probably on more on a regular basis To keep, you know, to keep the system honest and to, you know, provide accountability of some sort, but it's rarely used. So, you know, it's, uh, that's disturbing in and of itself. Yeah. I I would think that, you know, in the old days, um, you know, back in the seventies, eighties and nineties, especially seventies, eighties in Ontario, where I was, there'd be coroner's inquests, which are essentially this Mm -hmm. on a regular basis any kind of death where there was a question that there may be some culpability somewhere in the system, they would have a coroner's inquiry. It was like a jury, you'd go into the courtroom and there'd be a panel and and I sat through many of them. And I thought they were pretty useful exercises for getting into the, the structure of what happened.
1: Yeah, like in this case, you say, well, there's nobody, you can't say, all right, it's this person's fault. I mean, it's nobody's fault, and it's a whole bunch of people's fault because it's a system problem. And this is the way to address a system problem. Absolutely, that's what it's for.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this This um, review, inquiry, inquest, it has its own story because this, this it goes on for ages. It's interrupted by the pandemic. Talk a bit about the the journey through this. Yeah. Last, so, I guess, four years now that's been going on.
1: Uh, okay, so. I wrote a few dates down just because it's good to remember things. May 21, uh, 2019, there were some opening remarks made. So the the inquiry was called February 14th, 2018. Uh, A year and a bit later, we have our opening remarks. That's uh, time spent, I think, trying to organize a database of uh, evidence and all these kinds of things, get those established. March uh, 2nd. 2020, uh, sorry, we start hearing evidence in January of 2020, January 27th, and then it goes to March, and then we get the pandemic. Mm-hmm. No, uh, so this was taking place in Gagebro, it's municipal office, actually just up the hill from from me, and uh, in a, a former, it used to be a courtroom, but it was a municipal chambers, it was made into an inquiry room, it was working quite well. Near where the family lived, people coming to watch, uh, it, was, it was great. Then we get the pandemic and they decide that it needs a bigger space, even though the municipality says they were never asked whether they could accommodate under the rules and could have, they say. It was moved to Port Oxbury to the bigger courtroom. So it's a year later uh, that we get back into hearings in February of 2021. Go for 25 days into June of 2021, break until September, do another nine days, September, October, November. I've just uh, scattered evidence, like witnesses that didn't get into the earlier sessions. And then we did our closing arguments April 20th, 2022. All right. And then from there on, Judge Zimmer was writing his report up until about, uh, well, it was he was taking it was about a year on that he was still writing his report when he was uh, pulled off the, the gig by the provincial government uh, because he had aged out he was 75 years old he had been extended a couple of times but judges have a mandatory retirement age and the province just decided not to extend him any further and then we got a new judge and the new judge Judge Scoville took about 6 months to write his report so that's There's the the saga of the inquiry. Wow.
4: The families have been in and out of courtrooms for seven years. I miss my mom internally and deeply, Um, my brother as well, all of them. On January third, 2017, Corporal Lionel Desmond legally bought a semi-automatic rifle a few hours later, he shot and killed his wife, Shayna, their 10-year-old daughter, Aaliyah, and his mother, Brenda. He then fatally shot himself. The tragic end to the rifleman's battle against PTSD after serving two tours in Afghanistan. The inquiry heard how Desmond and his health care providers struggled to access his military health records and how he faced delays in trying to get care through both Veterans Affairs Canada and Provincial Health Services leading to what the judge called, quote, a large crack in psychotherapy through which Corporal Desmond fell. This has been an arduous and emotional process. Judge Paul Scoville's recommendations include making sure Ottawa provides a case manager to veterans as they transition out of service, and that the Nova Scotia government improved the transfer of health records by working with other provinces and federal agencies, along with ensuring frontline workers get up-to-date information on intimate partner violence. Other recommendations focus on better background checks and reassessments for firearms licenses.
0: Nothing here relates to assisting the Borden family for the tragedy that took place.
4: But for Shayna Desmond's family, the report is a disappointment. They still live in the home where the killings happened and say Veterans Affairs has ignored their
0: pleas for help. The first way to begin to help the families heal is to help the family with relocating.
4: The federal minister only saying overall changes have been made. We certainly want to move forward in in improving any services that we can in order to make life better for our veterans and also their family members. The inquiry recommends a special committee to track progress on the recommendations so they're not lost, the judge said, to the passage of time after the families have spent so long waiting.
0: Now, we've talked a lot in the lead-up to this report coming out. Um, It's now finally in the public's hands, Tell us about the report and the reaction to it.
1: The report, and uh, I've, <laughs> did an, I did a couple of interviews where I mentioned this fact that the judge being, to change of judge made a huge difference, all right? Yeah. And this is no way disrespectful to Judge Scoville, who did as good as could be under the circumstances, but those were the circumstances. Here we had Judge Zimmer, who was one of the top criminal lawyers in the province before he was named a judge. Did it, had a great reputation as a judge, and here's this was the culmination of a great legal career. Like he was involved, I think, in the Hyde inquiry. Uh, certainly, one of the others uh, as counsel as well. So, and had been thinking about this case and nothing but this case for five, six years. So, Judge Scoville comes along and does a very functional report. He gets the main recommendations correct, but there's no flavor to it, right? And where Judge Zimmer, during the hearings, were very critical of Veterans Affairs and, you know, I think would have been a little less concerned with the jurisdictional niceties and would have just said what he was thinking. And and, and he must have had other theories on Lionel that, you know, Judge Scoville just couldn't have. Coming, you know, it was like going, doing your exam when you didn't go to the class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did a good job, but um, could have been a lot better if Judge Zimmer had done it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, report ends with recommendations, much like what we got from the uh, Mass Casualty Commission. What is what is your feeling on the recommendations that come out of this? Do they address, you know, the root cause and problems and in, in what happened?
1: They do, except with this, you know, one big exception where they don't talk about the dissociative episodes and the possibility of, of that, because that explains a few other things, right? Because they talk about one thing, they talk about domestic violence services, not being in place. And that's probably true. We saw that in the mass casualty as well. But they also say, all right, everybody involved in this family, the police officers, the counselors, everybody else seems to have missed all the signs. Yeah, possibly. Or maybe there weren't those many, maybe there weren't that many signs and he killed his wife and his family and it is in the midst of a dissociative episode. You know, mm-hmm. the same with Dr. Yoshi, who signed the firearms license. He says, well, he seemed to be doing well. Oh, okay, well, maybe Dr. Yoshi missed the signs, or maybe he was doing well, except for when he had these episodes. I don't know. It's uh, I, w- I wish that the judge, that the report had grappled with that question and made a conclusion one way or the other, I guess. That's uh, where I, I feel there's been a shortcoming. And, I mean, just the function of it being a provincial inquiry, not joint provincial-federal. That limited the scope of what it was going to examine in the first place hmm. um, Is't that the way to do it though? Hmm. the way
2: government does it they, they they set the parameters for an inquiry and that's part of what I'm writing about in in my next book yeah. is inquiries only do what they, they have such uh, the parameters are often so narrow and so contorted, they get the answer they want before they even sit down. You know, the the, the commission even sits down, or the yeah. inquiry begins to hear evidence.
1: In this case, Paul, they would have known probably by the time they called the inquiry that the hospital hadn't done anything wrong. So their main fear of liability that the hospital had turned him away that was kind of out of the out of the picture. And there was going to be some recommendations about coordinating with the federal systems. Yeah. That's more on the federal's uh, veterans affairs. Yeah. So all right, let's keep it in within these confines. We're gonna come out okay, and then we could if if not, if it looks like it might be bad, we'll just replace the judge at the end. <laughs> and have them all the whole
2: oh, welcome to Canada and Nova Scotia.
1: Yeah,
4: that's yeah.
2: how it works.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, like the, the anyway, the the racial side of things think you, you know that that part came up too. Is like you know, look at how much money they spent at the pick inquiry, and not here. You know, can't even, can't even get a, a color, color, cover page, right? And
0: uh, yeah, the, the website is pretty uh, early two thousands vibe to it as well.
1: Yeah, but of course, I mean that was all that was needed, really. I, the mass casualty commission should have pulled back to this level. Probably was the answer, but um, anyway, there, there was a noticeable difference when he was uh, unceremoniously uh, shown the door. By the way, not and not invited to the release either. Uh, Judge Zimmer made the the point of saying about the Mass Casualty Commission that they had three commissioners and like 30 staff and however many people reading through these documents. This is a judicial inquiry. I've got to read these all myself (laughs) Mm. and do all the writing myself. Like nobody's doing a first draft of anything. Wow. So, you know, in other words, it definitely wasn't taking him too long to write the report.
0: Mm. So what comes next? And with the recommendations come out of the Desmond report, is there any discussion now on anything changing or anything coming out of this?
1: Well, (laughs) no. Uh, So there is an implementation committee, Mm -hmm. a different setup, slightly different setup than the mass casualty commission. The mass casualty commission had a, (laughs) you know, a person from all different kinds of organizations, including family representatives. This is a, a group of senior bureaucrats from the relevant departments of the provincial government Mm -hmm. with a, uh, up to, you know, a a minimum five-year mandate. That's it. That's all they really say about it. They don't invite the family to be involved. They don't say it should be public. They don't do any of those things. So it doesn't fill one with confidence that there's going to be a, you know, a parade of recommendations being fulfilled.
0: Okay. Well, that's not... uh... Very uplifting. No,
1: no, like uh, I mean the the Desmond. I mean they. It's hard to believe they still have the energy to keep fighting, but they will keep pushing to make sure these changes happen because there's a lot of military families that are off, you know, providing support. There's a community around this, but that's uh, it's not going to happen of its own volition. One mm-hmm. wouldn't.
0: There's a few questions I want to ask you, and I don't know if you can answer these, but there there are some parts of this story that a lot of people discuss as possibly being uh, involved, and I, and I just want to get it straight from the horse's mouth, is there's there's a discussion about Lionel being given some kind of um, like controversial medicine or therapy when he was in Afghanistan that some people believe could lead to violent behavior. Do you know of, yeah. of, of did anything related to that come out in the inquiry?
1: It, it certainly, uh... Certainly came up many times. Mefloquine
0: is yeah. the, the what is anti-
1: anti-malarial drug. Okay. Uh, there's a class action taking place out of Toronto. I was in touch with the lawyer about it. There was no evidence discovered that uh, Lionel Desmond took mefloquine or was uh, administered it. But it was uh, it was raised many times. Uh, so. Anyway, it's raised in a way and not dismissed, I guess, uh, I guess in, with a hundred percent certainty, uh, okay. a lot of people. And I, I wouldn't be shocked to hear that he, he took it, but there was no evidence that he did. And, you
0: know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then another thing is um, that is discussed a lot by people that closely follow this story is not long after the inquiry was announced and began uh his sister Cassandra was it was kind of like the face of the family speaking publicly she'd be on the news a lot talking about this she was arrested for for a, i believe for an assault not long after the inquiry started and of course that made its way to the news this arrest but i know there's been updates with that there sure is what what is the story with with Yeah her? so last
1: this was this was last year on the mm-hmm. anniversary uh, on January 3rd, Cassandra and her cousin were at Dooley's in Anikadish, having a quiet drink and a quiet night, just, uh, you know, telling some stories to each other and, you know, consulting each other basically. And, uh, some, some guys came in all hyped up, uh, and causing trouble anyway, uh, trying to, you know, trying to pick up the girls and, uh. They were, they didn't want any part of it and it became it turned into a physical altercation. A guy had a uh, ended up in a in the hospital with a serious wound, uh, alleged to have been a stabbing. The more likely cause was he was went through a like landed on a glass like glass door fell out or something that he landed on. So he probably got a piece of glass in him.
0: Because what came to the news was that she was arrested for a, for a stabbing. So that was how it yeah, came.
1: Yeah, to murder, right? And so uh, they, it was very serious. But there was video of the whole thing. The bartenders backed her up, backed her story up, that the guys were the aggressors. They were, you know, they were really drunk. Uh, they were probably on some drugs. And they were the ones that were being aggressive. Anyway, she was charged nevertheless. And just... I think two weeks ago, found not guilty of all charges. Uh, so, but, you know, all right, think of these things again, right? This is, you know, think of these things through a racial lens. Here here it is, uh, you know, a strong, outspoken black woman and, you know, ma- making changes, making waves. And here was a way to knock her down a peg. Mm-hmm. Discredit her a little bit. She'd never been charged. You know, there was never a knife found, you know, nothing like that and like i say a whole thing on video but they charge her anyway make her go through the trial and but resoundingly found not guilty
0: wow and you know and that doesn't make it in the news it's always funny when she's arrested lionel desmond's sister attempted murders big story found not guilty i didn't hear peep about that
1: well and you can imagine how that would take the good out of you too as as an advocate and Mm. uh you have your own struggles. She's a single mom, uh, you know, and she's got a, one of her other relatives living with her now too. She's uh, supporting him in high school. Like, she's got a lot on her shoulders. She's going to school, uh, trying to better herself, like, and trying to do all these things at once. And that's that's what she gets. Wow, yeah.
0: I'm not. I'm sad to say, I'm not surprised to hear that 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 card or that hand of cards were dealt to her.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was something else, but uh, so she's she's been having a good few weeks here lately. Uh, with you know, the report has its problems, but you know, the inquiry is now complete and the reports are the recommendations are there, ready to be implemented, ready to help families. So she's very satisfied about that, and she's she's got her freedom too. <laughs> so good. Uh, that's no longer hanging over her head.
0: Um. Before we start wrapping it up, Paul, do you got any other questions for Adam about that or any other talking points you want to get into about the Desmond case before we start?
2: No, no, I think he's covered it quite well. I've had a nice rest here. Thank you. <laughs> uh, um, no, the, the charges, these sort of uh, discretionary charges that are laid in sort of controversial cases is a real problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we saw it in uh, Pick with Leon Jodry being charged for something that was penny ante, which served to discredit him and charges against Lisa Banfield being laid, which served to protect her and then are effectively dropped afterwards. Uh, So it's it's the RCMP using charging in almost a political way, which is very disturbing.
0: Hmm. Uh, Adam, is there any part of Lionel's story or the inquiry or the recommendations that you think it's important to talk about that we didn't?
1: No, just the seriousness of of making sure that these changes take place. You know, it continues on. I mean, Canada was asked to go to Mali in Africa to fight. You know, a couple of years ago, and kind of demurred on it. But it's going to keep happening. You know, the world is not a safe place. Uh, there's places where this is going to be, and we've got to get better at this. You know, like like I've I've said elsewhere. Like there were no deaths in lionel's company in afghanistan but eight committed suicide upon their return like because of the you know the ptsd the memories the difficulty transitioning back into civilian life and here we have highly qualified individuals with you know skill sets leadership uh, attributes all these things uh, that could be very very valuable in if we can reintegrate them properly and uh, you know if we're going to continue to have a strong military we have to get this right
0: i think that's a good way to end it um paul before we put a bow on it anything else you want to say anything you want to ask the public well i know
2: there's a couple of, couple of military people listening to this tonight um they you know i've talked to them and i told them this was going on um i would encourage uh, them and others to come forward as i said last week Come forward, tell us what's going on. We can talk about it. I think it's an important issue. And uh, it's all the same issue about sort of the health of the institutions in Canada. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has everyday consequences. Right down to, you know, every one of us is affected by the fact that these institutions don't work properly. Mm
0: -hmm. And I I think the Desmond case is just um, an example of how bad it can go and how bad the system is right now to protect people, you know, coming out of it.
1: That's right.
4: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, we'll end with that guys. Um, Adam, I appreciate you, um, answering all these questions. I know it's, it's unique. Like as we talk now, uh, up until now, it's generally in the context of you being a subject matter expert on the legal cases or public inquiries in whole as a, you know, in general, but in this conversation, you know, you're, involved in an altogether different way so i appreciate you talking about it with us
1: well glad to have the opportunity guys i mean this was a big part of my life for you know six almost seven years now too uh, and it i i learned a lot from it on inquiries on the military on all sorts of things so it was uh, a great experience uh, from my perspective and uh, glad to be able to make hopefully make some positive
0: changes in in the world at large. I want to thank you for joining Adam, Paul, and myself for this discussion. If you have any thoughts or opinions on the stories we discussed this week, or have any topics you'd like to recommend for future episodes, you can share them with us via a voice memo sent at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. Now I'm going to wrap up this episode, but before I do, let me end with some thanks. First, a big thanks to Adam and Paul for sharing another evening with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. I'd like to thank LJ from the Dystopian Simulation Podcast, who provides our intro and outro voiceovers, and Monty Data, who provides the music for this series. And then lastly, but of course most importantly, a massive thank you goes out to each and every one of you listening to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. Now on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the Nighttime Podcast Premium feed. Gail, Adam, and Tiffany, thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can help us out here in a variety of ways. First of all, a premium feed subscription costs just a couple dollars a month, and that money funds the creation of the show, but the premium feed also gives you the episodes two days early, gives them to you ad-free, and gives you access to a full back catalog of nighttime episodes. If that sounds like something you're interested in, you can go premium right now at patreon.com nighttimepodcast. And even if you don't want to go premium, you can still support the show by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting all your like-minded friends know what we're doing here. Your support is very much appreciated. And to close this all off, let me just remind you to take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.